Hello. Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. Janice Del Negro is a professor at the School of Information Studies at Dominican University, where she teaches storytelling, children's and young adult literature and foundations of library and information science. She is a storyteller, author, educator and coach. She is incredibly respected in our community and has met and worked with many of our great storytellers. She challenges us to do better and is a huge supporter of storytelling. This was another one of those incredibly rich and lengthy conversations, so this is part one of two. Please welcome Janice Del Negro. So Janice, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Conversations with Storytellers. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. For our listeners, Janice Del Negro is an associate professor at the Graduate School of Libraries and Information. I'm what? a full professor now. Oh. For our listeners who are listening, <laughs> Janice Del Negro is not an associate professor, but a full professor at the Graduate School of Libraries and Information <laughs> Science at Dominican University. She has been entered into the circle of excellence. Oh, yeah by the National Storytelling Network and has quite a few other awards tucked under her belt. And she's written a number of books. Janice has been a librarian and is probably still a librarian at heart and is, of course, a storyteller. It has been said that Janice has the infinite mind of a TARDIS and has as much knowledge, if not more, than the library that burnt down in Alexandria. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Janice. Who said that? (laughs) I did, just now. If only, if only it were true. I'm a librarian, so you know, I know a lot of, I know just enough about a lot of things to be really annoying. (laughs) Or dangerous. Or both. It was my best job, you know, that job. As a children's librarian, was the best job? It was my best job. I have, I've had, you know, I had a lot of jobs up until that point. God, I was even a travel agent for a while. And um, oh my God, yes. And I, I got, I became a children's librarian almost. When you, do you ever look back on your life and there's, there's this long trail of things that led you to exactly where you are right now? Yeah. That you were totally unaware of at the time that they were happening? Yeah. Right. So that's sort of what it was like. I wound up as a children's librarian, I thought completely by chance. And it was just the best job ever. You know, I got to do the things that I really love to do every day. And every day, even the bad days, I knew that I did something good. Yeah. So it was, it was just the best job. And it was constantly reinvented all the time. So it was new every day. And it was great. And then they promoted me into administration, which I hate and I'm very bad at. And I'm I'm really I'm really not good at it. And um, 
you're a people person nice because it wouldn't get me it would i wouldn't be here now i wouldn't be where i am now if i didn't do all of those other things right. but i have reached the point where i know that administration is not my f strong point and they keep trying to put me in charge of things and i keep saying no <laughs> i'm just like don't you want to chair this committee not really <laughs> I'll be on it. I'll do whatever you want. I mean, I'm a really good second, but I do not want to be the person who has to schedule everything and manage the dates and make sure everything is on time. You know, I'm one of yeah. those people who likes, who likes to wave at the deadlines as they go by, which is not really a good thing <laughs> for an administrator. You know, an administrator is supposed to be on right. top. So I so admire people who, do, who can do that. And I know <clears throat> and I count on some people who can do that because it's just not my... And now, your forte I, or cup of tea. Yeah. Either it's 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 neither of those things. And <laughs> is that right? Either neither. And um, especially now, when time has no meaning at all. You know. And I, I know when people say that it's the twilight zone, it really does feel like that. And I feel there's a whole generation, like this younger generation, that they need to start watching the twilight zone just to see what we mean. And they'll be yeah. like, "Oh my gosh, this is it. This is real." I think it's streaming somewhere. I think you can get the old ones online. Yeah, that you can. Um, you can. I'm sorry, we went off on children's librarianship. No, that's that's fine. Children's librarians are good things. So, um, so moving on from the children's librarians. So you got your Bachelor of Arts, right? You got your BA. I did. I got a. I had a BA in um, American literature with a minor in. Uh, I had a double minor in human communications and history, which essentially equipped me to do oh nothing. <laughs> and although I don't think I would give it up for any reason because it changed, it made the world bigger, you know, which is exactly what education is supposed to do, you know, right, right. To, you should take this, you should take this class because it will get you this job. Right. That is just the absolute baseline of what education is supposed to do to do for you. Right. And so I wouldn't change that, but I went to work, um, Gosh, I worked for Hilton Hotels for a while, and I was a travel agent. I was a, a corporate travel agent for a while. Wow. And, um, and the corporate travel agent has has the smack of an administrator in it. Oh, and I, <laughs> I, I, booked, I booked hotels and airplanes. That's what I did. Okay. <laughs> for executives at a company, that's for, at, at a corporation. That's what I did. And did that destroy your soul a little bit, or was it okay? Just, I can't tell you how I coped with it because it's not legal in many states. So I just was, um, so that, was, I mean, and I was doing that and the money was, was the money was good, you know? So I, oh, mean, I, bet, I, yeah. I had a really nice apartment. I had an apartment in Queens with a friend. We had a formal dining room and a fireplace, which you couldn't even touch now. But um, yes, I, <clears throat> it was less than fulfilling. So I went back to school and I, I thought I was going to be an academic librarian because I was really good at school. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just be an academic librarian and then I'll just go to school forever and just collect degrees and, you know, I'll be happy that way. And I went to work for a woman named Margaret Porch. She was a professor at my um, library school. And she was, the, she was um, from the American South and she was an army librarian, but she was a youth services specialist in the army. 
she did children's services on a variety of bases around the world. And she landed at my school and I uh-huh. was her assistant. I became her graduate assistant in, in this, compl- which then I thought was a fluke. And now I realize was the hand of destiny. And um, she, what I did mostly for her classes was I kept track of her appointments and I pulled books for her classes. And, uh, I would pull things on this book truck. I have entire book trucks full of books. And she would, and I would say, oh, Margaret, I read this when I was a kid. You know, or Margaret, I read this when I was. And finally, at one point, she just looked at me and said, for heaven's sake, you're not supposed to be an academic librarian. Academic libraries are boring. <laughs> you're, children's services, you're supposed to be a children's librarian. And, and I did. And it was the best job. Not yeah. to mention it led me to storytelling, which was how I got to storytelling in the first place. So did you, were you, were they taught when you were getting your MLS? Was, was that taught uh, yes, storytelling? I, yes. And it's still taught. I teach it in graduate school. I teach it in the school of information studies at Dominican. Um, and Margaret taught it. I was at a state university at Geneseo in New York mm-hmm. and um, Margaret taught storytelling there. And I had such Gosh, I had such terrible stage fright. So bad. I mean, I used to shake, you know, and go into the, I was, it was dreadful, dreadful. But I loved, there was something about storytelling, you know, I just, so I, when I got a job in Chicago, I moved to Chicago and um, another one of those flukes, which is, you know, now the hand of destiny and there was some trip being organized to go to the National Storytelling Festival. And Jonesboro, Tennessee. Jonesboro. And I went in a van with a with seven other people, most of whom I didn't know. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, this was like in 1981, Simon. So this is like so pretty close to the really beginning. Of early. Yeah. Yes. And it wasn't as slick as it is now. And I don't mean slick in a negative way. I just mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they've been doing yeah. it so long, they really know how to do it. You know, I mean, it's really, yeah. um, so it had, it still had kind of a, I don't know, it still had sort of a, a, an informal feel to it. You know, I mean, I saw Ray Hicks on the stage there. I saw Pete Seeger was there. Wow. Um, there was, I went to a show there once and everybody had gone to, it was raining. Mm-hmm. Everyone had gone to the graveyard, to, to the cemetery for ghost stories. And that was when it was still small enough that you could have ghost stories in the graveyard up the hill. Yeah. Main street. And, and I was like, oh, I'm not sitting out in a cemetery. I'm, I mean, come on. I'm not yeah. sitting in a cemetery in the rain. Seriously. So I went to the tent and it was Pete Seeger and Bill Harley. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, I'm never going to, I'll never get a chance to see Pete Seeger again, right? If I don't go to this. So in I went, and there couldn't have been, maybe there were 150 people in there, maybe 200, you know. And to give and, a reference to those people that don't know this, the tents seat about 1,000, 1,500. So this was a, this was a small tent, which is, which was right where they now locate um, the food trucks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was raining out and, you know, we were wrapped in a blanket and everybody had a little something in their flask because it was cold and damp. And, <laughs> and Bill Harley and Pete Seeger were up there on the stage and Bill was so excited. He was so excited. 
You know, I mean, it was Pete Seeger, for God's sake. It was the best show. I, I mean, I couldn't, it was amazing. It was really amazing. And it, it wound up being this raucous sing-along by the end of the night. And it was, we had a ball. I mean, we just had a blast. And then everybody was wandering back from the ghost stories, all damp and wet and bedraggled. And, <laughs> and, I, and we were so happy. It's like you went to the wrong place. This is one of the nights where I really picked the right place to be. And yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And yeah, you know Bill's, what Bill's is like. Yeah, I do. I it do. And I know what Bill's head. like too. Well, Bill's a Spitfire. He's, it's one of my favorite memories of. I mean, I've known Bill as a storytelling acquaintance for a long time, and it's one of my favorite memories of him. It's right up there with. I, he, Dovey, and I were in a a. a a festival in Michigan. Okay. And I was the only one with a car because I drove there because I drive everywhere. And so I was in charge of driving Dovey and Bill to wherever we were going to tell that day. I think it was, I, oh gosh, I can't remember. Barbara Schutzgruber would, would smite me. But the, <laughs> the, um, and the best thing in the world was driving the car and listening to two of them talk. Because if I didn't laugh, I laughed all the way there and all the way back because they were so funny. They were so funny. And I can't remember anything that happened. I can't remember anything anybody said except that we laughed a lot. So. Yeah, and Bill's deep as well. He, yep. He's very deep. You know, and when you look at his stories, you think, well, they, you know, they're, they're fun and they're silly and all the rest of it. But when you actually have a conversation with the guy, he's really deep. And I, 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 I got a lot of admiration for Bill. So were there any storytellers in your family growing up? What was it like being little young Janice? Um, so my, I, have, I had an Irish mother and an Italian father. Oh. And, um, <laughs> that must have been exciting. And life was always interesting. And then my sister Bonnie married a Greek. So that really increased our options as regards um, family gatherings in terms of food. Right. Yeah. Holiday eating. Um, it was it was pretty. Uh, it was a huge extended family of people who, no matter what else was going on, when we got together as a family, we were happy to be together and we were happy to sit around and cook and eat and talk and play cards. And, you know, I don't know nearly enough family stories, <clears throat> I think now, but every now and then I, a little piece of one will pop up. Yeah. And remind me, but I really, and, and, and it's one of those things we usually, even now we carry that sort of everybody together for the holiday, big family thing. We always go to my sister Jones in New York for Thanksgiving and there's about 34 of us and we all just sort of move into her house, which wow. is certainly not equipped to handle 34 of us. <laughs> In any possible way. So you can just imagine there are people like piled all over the floor. And my nephew Gregory used to sleep under the dining room table because he said it was the only place he could sleep where no one would step on him. Yes. And it was just, but of course, we're not doing that this year, which makes me very sad. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's the first time and it has to be 25 years. Wow. Wow. So you heard, even if you can't remember, probably a lot of family stories. I did hear some, and they were, they were, um, <clears throat> you know, I heard about my Uncle Jack coming back from the war after they th thought he was dead. You know, they got an MIA telegram, and mm. 
and then the war was over and there he was i heard that about must have that. been absolutely wonderful that is that's kind of an amazing story too um he was a Do bombardier bombardier yeah he got shot down over germany and force marched and the allies were chasing them and I never saw him. He was a very um, controlled man. You know, I think now we would have looked at it and said he he had probably had PTSD when he came back from the war, but then they didn't talk about it the same way then. Right. And, um, he used to come to my sister Jones for Thanksgiving, and he he was the kind of, you know, he liked to be in the same house with us. He just didn't want to be in the same room. You know? so He liked the vibe, but not the <laughs> But he didn't want to be, like, in the crowd. And every now and then he would come out, and he'd have a cup of tea and a cookie or a piece of pie, and he'd say hello to everyone, and then he'd go away. And then he'd go back to watching the football game because he was a big football fan. And um, there was one year when, oh, I don't know, some – Somebody in Iran, I think, was talking about this book by a professor at Northwestern University that was a, it was a Holocaust denial book. And it had, you know, anybody with any real credential was just appalled, including all of the professors at Northwestern. Um, and so this, this, a politician said that this was one of his favorite books and it proved that the Holocaust didn't really exist and, you know, and everyone was lying. And, and my uncle read, didn't had never read the book, but he read the newspaper article and it was the first time in my whole life. And I, I mean, my uncle lived with us when I was little. And so I, I really knew him since I was a child. And it was the first time in all the years that I'd known him that I ever saw him angry. He wow. was, absolutely furious in ways that I had never seen before. And he just looked at me at one point and he got me by the wrist and he said, I saw what they did. He said, I know what they did. I saw what they did there. You can't tell me this didn't happen because I saw what they did. So he was really, I mean, the man was, incredibly conservative and somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, but he was not, <laughs> this was something that you could not, he, he, he saw the camps. He saw what was left yeah. of the camps. He saw, and he saw the people who were, who had managed to live through the camps. And he was just my Irish uncle. Oh, that must've been, I, I can't even imagine what that must've been like. It's just to be, to be one of the people that came into the camps to see yeah. these folks. And, and he never know. talked about the war, you know, Simon? He I don't think did. anybody did. My mother said he came home. She was at the laundromat doing laundry, and she saw this man come up over the street. They were on, we grew up, they grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx, too. And um, so this man in a uniform with a cane come over the, you know, over the hill and walk down the street and she didn't recognize him because he looked so different. Oh my gosh. Her brother. And when he got closer, she realized it was her brother. And up until that point, they thought he was dead because they had this MIA telegram and 
you know, missing in action, presumed dead. And there he was. And she said he sat at the kitchen table with her that night and he told her everything, everything about his time, about what happened to him. And then he never talked about it again. I think he talked to my nephews a little bit at one point um, when one of, when they were thinking about uh, joining the service and, um, and that time when he read that newspaper article. That was wow. the time. Oh, sends shivers down my spine. So all powerful things that people live with all the time. Yeah. The stories are really powerful. They're really powerful things. Yeah. I was talking with, um, I was talking with Ray Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, who's a, a vet. And he's, you know, he says that he's heard these people that, talk about being in the army and they tell all these stories and he's he's like these are stories that they've heard and they they haven't actually experienced what, mm -hmm. what they're talking about it's just because the people that experience them don't tell those stories no my nephew we have a lot of marines in the family and my nephew was my nephew was a marine is a marine you're always a marine once a marine you're always a marine and um he was writing letters to my to his mother, my sister, and uh -huh. he would tell her the things that he was having to go through in in training, you know, like oh, crawling through a pipe full of water with an inch of air at the top, or um, crawling under barbed wire with live ammunition. And she finally had to write him a note and say, "You can't tell me these things." <laughs> yes, right. Moms don't want to know that stuff. You can't tell me this because I I don't sleep for weeks after. Yeah. So. <laughs> it was pretty funny, actually. But yeah, they have a, they have a rough they have a rough life of it. Um, so what? So you you became going back to the children's librarian thing. You became a children's librarian, and I'm assuming that you started telling stories to kids. Um, and yes. Then, then what was the next? What was the next step for you? Um, I belong to a a storytelling group in Chicago, mm -hmm. so I told stories there for a while. Um, I remember, you know, I did a lot of work with babies, with preschoolers, three to fives. Oh, wow. Good for and, you. Uh, I just love them to pieces. I really do. And, but I was doing a lot of programming. I, because we were sort of like little programming machines, you know, and, uh, I did five preschool story times and three toddler programs a week. And that wow. didn't even count, you know, that didn't even count the other things that were happening after school programming and things like that. Um, and I'd been doing them for a while, preschools, preschool story programs, and I was bored. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Here we are on a podcast. Don't tell anybody. I know, right? <laughs> um, because I'd been doing them for such a long time. And, and they, and I, and they told me two things in library school. And one of them I believed and one of them I didn't believe. And it should have been exactly the other way. Because one of them was, um, preschoolers need the stimulation of the visual. You can't just tell them an oral story. And the other one was never tell a story you don't like. Yeah. And I thought, of course, preschoolers need the visual, right? Of course they need the visual. You can't, they're so little, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, and of course you're, you're going to tell stories for events. You're going to learn things just to do for events or themes or special occasions. <clears throat> well, Preschoolers will listen to you tell a story without a book, and you should never tell a story that you don't like. 
And yeah. with a little imagination, any story can fit any theme. All you yeah. have to do is figure out how you're going to introduce it. Right. Right? So I was in story time one day, and here I am with my 24, three-and-a-half to five-year-olds on the floor, and they'd been coming. You know, we do series, so they'd been coming to me for weeks, right? So they knew me, and I knew them, and I'm telling them the three billy goats gruff. And I'm using this big, giant, really ugly picture book, but you could see the pictures. So, And I realized I'm not even looking at the book because I've told this story so many times that I don't even have to look now. And I realize as I'm turning the pages that they aren't looking at the book at all. They're watching my face. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting? <laughs> so I sat on the book. And I just kept telling them the story, just talking to them. And, you know, and as I was, they just sort of scooted up on the floor until they were like crowded around my feet. And, you know, one or two of them were hanging onto the hems of my pants as I was telling the story. And they were, they were so in it. It was just so amazing to watch and to be to be in this dynamic. And so after it was over, we acted it out and we had a great time, right? We had a wonderful time. And uh, when it was over, I had, I, I tell the story in one of my, <laughs> in one of the books. And when it was over, I had one of the boys, he was about four, asked me to next week, we'll do the three little pigs. Right. And I said, sure. And forgot all about it. I totally forgot it. And I went out and I thought, oh, great, we'll just do this like little creative dramatics thing at the end of story time. I'll do one story without a book and we'll just, and it was, it changed everything. I mean, uh -huh. It changed the whole dynamic of the program. And the next week came along and I did my bit and we were done. It was over. And this little boy looked up and said, but you said we'd do the three little pigs. And, and I couldn't not do it. Right, I couldn't not do it. How do you? How do you? No, you can't. Yeah, yeah. no, you can't. <laughs> and I mean, we had. I was in a position of trust here, you know. I mean, I'm not yeah. allowed to. You can't break promises to four-year-olds. So no. So I, I was. I said, okay, we'll do the three little pigs. The only problem was I didn't know it. Oh, you didn't. I didn't know the story. All I knew was the um, the Disney movie. Okay. Because at one of the libraries I worked at, it was the only movie we had, and we showed it all the time. So that was the only thing I knew. And I said to them, I said, okay, but you're going to have to help me because I haven't told the story. I haven't told the story yet, which you'd never tell to a bunch of adults, right? But kids right. don't care. They're like, okay, yeah, they we'll don't. help. Yeah. You know, we're just, sure. I love them so much. And the um, and we, so we told the three little pigs. And, you know, it's always... I had a little boy who wanted to be the mother. So he was the mother pig. And I had three little pigs, um, two boys and a girl. And I had the big bed wolf, which was the cutest girl with the pinkest ribbons in preschool story time. Nice. Always. They always, it's always that one. The young, the quiet one, the shy one who wants to be the bad guy. It was, it, it never failed really. Yeah. And we just... So we're doing this creative dramatics thing and I'm up, I'm standing in one corner and I'm the door, right? I'm the door of the house. And I have the first little pig is behind me and the wolf comes up, let me in, let me in. 
and I open my mouth to say something and the child behind me sticks her head out and says, not by the hair on my chinny chin chin. <laughs> and I started laughing and we were off. <laughs> I mean, we just went off and we did the whole story. And at the end, when the, um, when the wolf goes down the chimney and lands in the pot, mm-hmm. and the wolf came down the chimney and landed in the pot and there was wolf stew for lunch. And all of them, all the kids, when it burst into applause and cheers. And in the meantime, I had parents walking back and forth at the door of the preschool room because we were like 15 minutes overtime now. Uh-huh. And the kids were howling. They were just howling with laughter the whole time. And it was just, it was, it was, it's an amazing thing working with this age. And I know a lot of people don't like it. They don't like to do it because... <clears throat> because they're unpredictable. Preschoolers are unpredictable mm-hmm. and they're not socialized. You know, they're, if they're they, not conditioned. Yeah. Yes. If they don't, if they don't like what you're doing, they're going to play with the Velcro on their shoes or they're going to go crawling out of the room or they're going to start pulling somebody's hair. I mean, they're just going to ignore you and do something mm-hmm. else. Right. right? If they're not having. So I think it makes some people nervous, but I had a very, um, I had a very restrained childhood in some ways um, because my father was very ill most of my life. And it wasn't until I was working with, with babies at the library that I really, I learned how to play with them. You have to learn how to play because mm-hmm. that's what they do. That's their job. Right. Yeah. That's their job. Three to fives is to play. It is. It's so and you true. have to play with them and you have to give up any illusion of control because, you know, mm-hmm. that's not real. That's, that's not a real thing. Yeah. And just go with it. Right. So we, we had a ball in story time. We had great fun doing it. And, and people are, are surprised sometimes when I say that. I sometimes will call up my friend Janet, who's still, who's a children's librarian still. Mm-hmm. And I call her up and say, okay, I need a baby hit. I have to come to your library and do preschool story time because I haven't done preschool story time in a long time and I need to have some babies. And of course, we're not doing that now, but um, she would let me. <laughs> I'd go that's over and excellent. get my preschool hit and tell tell preschool stories. And That's so was, funny. I love them. I love them. I really yeah. do. And, and, I, and I loved high school students. Yeah which was something else that people don't like is middle schoolers and high school and, you know, oh my God. Yeah. high school. But I, I discovered that the thing, the trick with sixth graders is to scare the hell out of them mm-hmm. with the first story that you tell. Oh, really? The uh-huh. first story out of the, the box. Very first one out of the box. And then they'll listen to you tell them anything you want. Yeah. You know, you just have to kind of, huh. if they're not used to storytelling and a lot of, and a lot of kids aren't, Um, you have to prove to them that it's not story time that it's not baby stuff yeah you know and they think they're too cool for school anyway so it's true it is i told you know the story waylon smith right Mm -hmm. yeah so i went into a went into a middle school and i told that story (laughs) and they the kids their mouths were hitting the floor as Wayland skinned the skulls to turn into goblets. <laughs> They're like, yes, indeed. <laughs> and, and, and I find with high school students, they are, they will never admit this to you. They are very fond of the lush romantic fairy tale. They are. 
Yes. Which is I, yes, I found that out. People, right? Isn't it? It is. And, well, it's it, if if you think about it, it does make sense because yeah. they're they're getting to that age where that sort of stuff is getting real, mm-hmm. and and there's this you know what they see on TV is 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 no no different to a fairy tale except fairy tales I think have a better way of telling that story that romanticism. They do. Uh, it's it's more real. The structure keeps it in line. Yeah. I mean, the most outrageous things can happen in those stories, and the structure is such that it holds all that, all that magic inside. Right? It does. It's yeah. Structure yeah. is a lot. Structure is, if not everything, it's a lot <laughs> as far as storytelling. Yeah. Goes. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Reggie Carpenter um, yeah. when, when we were at the Stone Soup Storytelling Festival last year, and. Uh, she, you know, we were talking about personal stories and folk and fairy tales, and she said, that, you know, everyone should start with folk and fairy tales so that they get to understand what story structure is. Oh, absolutely, I agree. And, and you know, when when she said that, I looked at all the storytellers I knew who told personal narrative, mm-hmm. and the best ones were the ones that came from a folk and fairy tale background that switched over. It, that, it was yeah, because structure is. You have no control. If you don't understand the structure of your story, you don't have any control over it. If you don't have control over your story, you have no business telling it to a public audience. Yeah, I would agree so with that. That's, I, I find that really, I, I hit structure really hard when I'm teaching storytelling. And we start with folktales. We start with traditional story. And by the time they get to their fifth story, they can tell anything they want. By the time they get to the fifth story, um, and so I've had a I've had a, a bunch of personal tales. I had one of the funniest job interview stories I'd ever heard, and um, and they knew the form because they because we talked about it all the time. So when they put their story together, they knew what kind of structure they knew how to structure it. Yeah. So that it would be effective in the telling, and it was better than I mean the personal stories that my students told are better than many of the stories that I hear by professional tellers. So, so there. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to move on from there. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So you're, you're um, very much interested in bringing out and showing the strong female in stories. One of your books, uh, Lucy Dove, which is a great name, by the way, I love that name is a retelling of the sprightly tailor, but you cast Mm -hmm. a female lead in it. I did. Um, many of the early collections of folk tales were were collected by men. Yes. And at the time period um, in which they were collected, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, Germany with Grimm, France with Perrault, Norway with Moe and Asbjornsson. Sure, the 19th century. Yeah, and Jacobs yeah. and Lang and Burton from Britain. Uh, it, it was, um, there was quite a strict moral Christian point of view, which, which these people were living, uh, the collectors of these stories. And they came from a particular class, you know, they were an educated, educated gentleman, really. Yes. And God bless them for even for making the effort. Right. Because if they hadn't collected them, what would we have? Right. What would there be now? If they hadn't, if they hadn't collected, they'd be gone. They would be gone. And, and so, um, 
sometimes I think about all the things we didn't get, right? What didn't get collected. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, while they were collecting stories in the parlor, what were the women talking about in the kitchen? Yeah. What kind of stories were the women telling in the kitchen? And so you think about all those stories that didn't get told, but I, I'm grateful for the ones that did. And um, in the, when you look at the collections in the 70s, when they started to come out with collections of fairy folk tales with strong women, for example. Like the um, Ethel Phelps books? Yes, that one, Rosemary Menard, you know, Women Folk mm-hmm. and Fairy Tales, and Phelps is Made of the North, those, those, one, those titles. Yeah. Um, if you look at the notes in those books, they went back to the old collections for them. They went back to Esbjornsson and Moe, and they went back to Lang and Jacobs and the Grimms, and... Um, Oh, gosh, the Russian, Afanasyev, whose name I'm probably pronouncing really. Yeah, there's no way I was going to try and pronounce it. I I pronounce it the way it's spelled, which I'm sure is not right. But um, they went back to those collections. So it wasn't as if the stories didn't exist before, because they did. It was just that they're not the stories that were collected, that were anthologized and turned into picture books. Right. And Disney did not make them into movies. I mean, Disney really, until very recently, stuck very closely to the Western European fairy tale canon, right? He didn't really, Disney didn't really stray very far from that. And when you ask people if they know the story of Cinderella, for example, they'll Mm -hmm. say yes, because they've seen the movie. Right. Um, Not because they've read, oh, I don't know, the 600 some odd variations of Cinderella that there are all around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think that it's really interesting that, those stories we do have we do have versions of those stories um available to us that were collected in the 19th century they just weren't the stories that were picked up and told popularized yeah popularized so that became um so that's an interesting point but i mean we wouldn't have you know kathleen reagan's oh god i always get this title wrong wise girls beloved sisters and something something by reagan you have it on the shelf right I, I do. I'm looking. I'm looking for it. Where is it? Floating around here somewhere. Fearless girls. There you go. Fearless wise girls. women wise. and beloved sisters. This is a great book, right? And it has great it notes. Is. And it's well, a- some of the notes. I all right. So I, I I do take on some of the notes are really good, but she good. she wields a heavy stick she against does. Her men. Notes. Her personal yeah. notes. I'm not crazy about. Yeah. But I like her source notes a lot. I do too. Yeah. Having a source note means I can go find the story the way that she found it. Right. And I can see what she did to it in the retelling if she did anything. So I, I got interested in, in retelling fairy tales and creating original fairy tales when um, there was a big issue in, in the storytelling world about copyright and who owned what story and there were <laughs> There was, a, I mean, the same, same things that we're talking about today still. Um, who got to tell what from where and all that stuff. And, I mean, I remember leaving one conference and thinking I was never going to tell a story again. Wow. Because it was so, um, storytelling had been such, an, such a sort of open, welcoming community for so many people in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
And then when it became a business, we were talking about all kinds of different things. More things came to the, to the forefront, a lot of which had nothing to do with actual story. Um, and so that was that kind of, but it really, it pushed me into um, examining my relationship with the folk and fairy tale and deciding what did I want to do with them and how did I want to do it? And I, you, you mentioned Lucy, which was, you know, I'd been telling the sprightly tailor for a long time and, you know, it was okay. It was all right. The kids liked it. Right. I mean, what's not to like monsters in a graveyard, you know, it's cool. Yeah. And, but I was looking at my storytelling repertoire one day and realized that I had no old women. Mm. Um, I had girls and I had young women and I had teenagers and I had no old women. And so because I am the lazy, a lazy sort, I looked at this brightly tailor and thought, well, I wonder if I can shift this so that I can tell this story and give, and I can't tell you how many permutations this story went through before it wound up in this picture book, which, and now I look at it and I go, yeah, this is why I don't, this is the problem with printing things on paper. Right? <laughs> once, once they're on paper, it's done, right? It's kind of locked yeah. off the page. Whereas when we're telling stories, we get to change them every time we tell them. Yeah. Right? So there's always a chance to improve the story or alter the line or do whatever, right? There's always a chance to do it better the next time, which I find very reassuring. <laughs> yeah. So... I, I mean, at first she was the tailor's grandmother and then she was, I mean, and I was like, well, that's not going to work because there's just too many. There's just too much, too much, you know, front loading for that. I can't, I can't deal with that. We need to get to the graveyard really fast and we need to do, and she needs a name. I want to name this character, right? So a friend of mine had just had a little girl and he named her Lucy and I was irritated because I wanted to name my first girl Lucy and that didn't happen because, um, because, because Stephen did it and <laughs> So, um, so I thought, well, I'll name her Lucy. So what can I give her as a last name? So I was looking for, you know, I was like Lucy Taylor, Lucy Button. I said, oh God, that's so cute. I can't do that. And it was, and I was looking up, you know, I have, I have, I have about, I don't know, seven or eight different thesauri, right? And wow. the dictionary floating around and I'm impressed. So I'm going through my stuff, trying to find things and and trying to find a name. And I found um, the term dovetail, which is a tailoring term about how you put two pieces of material together uh-huh. and sew them together. Um, you can tell I'm a seamstress, right? You can tell yeah. I'm really good at this. And uh, I, dovetail was too long, but dove worked fine because it was it, it worked with the rhythm of the story, right? It worked in the telling. Yeah. No, I love that name. It's such so a great name. Was, and I find, so so there she was, you know, I finally had her. Um, I had a name for her and that made me really happy. And and then I was able to sort of shift the story um, to be more from her position, which was um, she'd gotten fired, right? She ah. got laid off from the, the Laird's household and she got... And the chance to, he offered a bag of gold 
to anyone who could sew him a pair of lucky trousers in the graveyard by the light of the moon. So this was her chance. This was her only chance. Um, this was the only thing that was going to keep her from starving in the street was if she could do this. If she, and so she bet, she bets everything on this one, on this one turn, she bets everything. And she goes to the graveyard at night where, where nobody goes because everybody knows that there's something really awful there. And off she goes and she manages to sew the trousers and make her escape and get her bag of gold and, her, and ends up with a bag of gold in a house on the beach, which is something that works really well for me. Nice. Yes. Bag of gold in a house <laughs> on the beach. And, and I, I found that. So I'm telling the story and in the middle of the story is this conversation between Lucy and the boggle in the graveyard. And in the traditional story, it's the monster says, do you see this great head of mine? And the tailor responds, I see that, but I'll sew this. And then it's, do you see this great neck of mine? I see that, but I'll sew this. And that goes on until the monster is fully emerged from the ground and gives chase to the tailor. And I always used to forget it forget this conversation and i mean i had i had terrible trouble getting the timing right and trying to figure out what was and that's I such a great part of the story because you can goof around not, with it well yes but see i wasn't doing that i was staying with this traditional back and forth and i have discovered in my old age that if you if there's a part of a story that you can't remember or that you miss every time that it's not something that's wrong with you. There's something wrong with the story. So you need to fix it. So uh. I, was sort of, I was kind of noodling around with this conversation when I spoke to uh, the woman who would be my editor in this picture book. And she said to me, and this is something I tell students all the time, the conversation in the graveyard is the only place where she really speaks. Mm -hmm. so it's the only place that we get to hear her and get to know who she is. And I went, oh, there we go. So who is she? Right? Who is she? How would she do it? What would she do? And she's a smart ass, Lucy. She is. She's a smart ass. She's got a sharp tongue and she's she knows she's, she's a cake cracking nuts. And she's not interested in, you know, she doesn't suffer fools really well. And mm -hmm. So this conversation in the graveyard turned into this whole other thing, right? He says, do you see this great head of mine? And she is like terrified sitting on this gravestone trying to sew these trousers. And she looks up and she says, I beg your pardon. Did you say something? And he strains and, and he reveals his neck and he says, do you see this great neck of mine? She says, oh, I see it. She says, oh, I know who you are. You're that we bogle, they tell all the stories about. And that's what starts their conversation. And so she uh -huh. keeps him entertained or exasperated with her conversation until she finishes the pants, right? Until she sews that last stitch. And then she's out of there. Yeah. She jumps up with the, with the trousers. She clutches them to her chest and she races out of the graveyard. And the, the monster is so surprised that somebody is actually trying to run away from him that he gives her like a minute, a few, a few steps. And then he pulls that, le that leg out of the ground and he chases her uh -huh. and um, he doesn't catch her in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it was that whole conversation and that changed 
how I looked at characters and stories after that. Because the only way you know who they are is if they speak. And so yeah. when, you, when you add dialogue to a traditional story, it really livens up your story. And it, ca- it captures your listeners because people want to hear the, the conversation, right? They want to hear yeah. the, 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 the conversation. So um, that, was, uh, that was really, that helped, that changed a lot of things for me. And I also had to decide if I was going to, if I was going to treat folktales as a cultural artifact or I was going to be part of the oral tradition in the course of yeah. them, as I told them, as tellers have done for decades, if not centuries and centuries. So, um, so I do a lot of original stuff now, a lot of retellings. Some stories I do are close to the, are close to the way that I found them. Mm-hmm. None of them are ever the same as I found them. But part That's of cool. the fun of retelling a a traditional tale that everybody knows is telling it from a point of view that no one has told it from before. And so that becomes something else to look at. I'm still trying to find a way into Sleeping Beauty, though. I can't. Oh, I can. I mean, she's boring, Simon. What am I going to do with her? She's asleep for the whole story. Although you could probably make a pretty good running joke about her napping. Wow. We are just beginning to get deep, and if you made it here, the second part is even better. If you liked what Janice said and want to hear more of her work, contact her at storytelling.org forward slash Del Negro. That's D-E-L-N-E-G-R-O. Janice is also working on a series telling stories with Megan Wells. It's called Moonshine Stories and are told on the full moon. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website at simonbrooksstoryteller.com and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use his music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar an episode you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content of my work. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Thanks to all of you for supporting my little podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Want your name mentioned? Join my little tribe. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then you can help me out by doing something you can do. I would very much appreciate it if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you found this episode. It won't take long and it helps not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are lots of other places that you could be, and I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> yeah.